to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. So glad that you're here. Again, if you're a guest, grab that blue card, drop it, and put it in uh, the black box in the back. You can also scan a QR code that should pop up on the screen. This is a great way for us to get in contact in touch with you, tell you more about City on a Hill, and just ways that we may be able to serve you uh, as a church. Uh, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Gospel means good news that we were once separated from God uh, because of our sin. Uh, and that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, you can find your way home to God through the work of Jesus for you on the cross. And so um, if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, we would love to talk with you about how to do that today. Just find myself or Matt Waldrop uh, or Matt Harris actually after the service right up here to my left. And we'd love to share how to do that with you. Uh, secondly, community. God created us to uh, enjoy life together. He created us for relationships. And one of the reasons the church gathers together is for community. Uh, we're a community that embodies the gospel to each other. We love and serve our neighbors together. Uh, but also we do this uh, in a kind of a smaller way through community groups. Groups meet throughout the week to study God's word, uh, to encourage each other, uh, to love and serve our neighbors. And so if you're not a part of a community group, we have a couple of weeks left in our summer semester. And then we're going to kick back off hard again in the middle of September. So it's still not too late. Drop in for the last couple of weeks and uh, you can find out more information about a community group by filling out that yellow card and dropping that in the box in the back. And then uh, lastly, mission. God created us to uh, join him on his mission to make the world a better place. We do this through telling others about Jesus, where you can find real hope in God through Christ, and also by loving and serving our neighbors through doing things like the block party we had yesterday, the way we serve at English High School. Those are ways that we join God on his mission. Uh, a couple of announcements. Uh, coming up next, this coming Saturday, we have a, a COA Kids meetup. So elementary age kids are having a meetup at the Franklin Park Zoo. Uh, you can find more information about that at our event page, coaforesthills.org slash event or through the Church Center app. And then coming up uh, on next Sunday, we're having a worship team audition. Uh, so if you are uh, have any sort of musical talent, Matt would love to let you. They're not letting me audition, sorry. Um, and so, but if, maybe you have some musical talent um, or the ability to sing. We'd love for you to stick around after, uh, come at, uh, sorry, at uh, one o'clock from one to two and uh, join in on that. You can uh, just come hang out and, and uh, be a part of that. And then it's also been a really busy summer, especially July. We ran hard in July. We, we uh, ran a soccer camp. We had Kids Summer Adventure this past week, which almost 50 kids came every day. So if you see Heather Waldrop, uh, especially, she's not in here. Uh, I'd love to give her a round of applause, even though she's not in here. Um, Heather crushed it. I mean, did an incredible job setting that up, um, leading out on that. Um, and so be sure to tell her thank you if you see her. Took time off of her job to do this, and so we want to honor her as well with a gift from the church. And so we'll uh, honor and give that to her at a later time when she's able to be in here with us. Uh, but big thank you to her. So one way we're going to do this is just kind of to take a big exhale is coming up on Friday, August 12th. We're going to have dinner on the Esplanade. This is just for adults. Sorry, kiddos. Staying home get a babysitter. Um, and so this can be for, uh, for, just bring your own dinner. You can bring it from home, stop and grab something. Uh, we'll have, we have a pin dropped through our event page, coaforestills.org slash events. We're just going to enjoy an evening on the Charles. Come hang out and uh, eat dinner together. So be, be sure to come enjoy that. 
Um, and then lastly, we have a survey. We have a church survey. This is really mostly for our members and regular attenders. Um, but if, you're, if you've been visiting for a couple weeks, we'd love to get your feedback as well. There is a, a paper survey in the back. We don't have the link up this morning yet. Um, there's a survey in the back on the table at the Connect table. Just grab that, fill that out, and you can drop it off with myself or Matt. Only our elders are going to see the answers to that. That's not public knowledge. So just helps us uh, get a better understanding of what's going on in our congregation and then ways that we can grow and improve as a church. Uh, this morning, uh, we're, we're jumping into James. This is not the end of James, as Matt just told us, but he gave me a really, really good example by saying that. Uh, has anybody ever watched a TV show that ended on a cliffhanger? Like they just canceled it for the next season, right? Um, we, we do have two more weeks in this, and we're not going to leave you on a cliffhanger. Um, but we all like happy endings. Nobody wants to watch a TV show that they cancel going into the last season because there's no resolution to it. Uh, we like happy endings. We want to know what happens at the end of a book or at the end of a movie. Um, we like resolution. There's a few of us who are just, we're odd and we like that really terrible, uh, like terrible ending, like the end of the Blair Witch Project where just everybody dies. Like, like, no, like some of us like that. Most of us want a happy ending. I, I believe this is something that's hardwired into us uh, that we want to live in a world where there's joy and there's peace. And we see this in our own experience. We see that the world isn't always joyful. It's not always peaceful. It's broken, but we long for things to be made right. And so we see this story in the Bible, that the Bible as a story has an arc to it. We see creation where God created us and everything was to be good and to be right and to be just and holy. But then because of sin entering into the world, the world is messed up and broken. There's, there's, there's death, there's chaos in our world, and that Jesus came to make everything right. That's the story of redemption, that God came down dying on the cross for our sins with the promise that there's a kingdom coming to make all right. And then we look forward to this day, this is the end of the, of the Bible, of a new creation or a reconciliation where there'll be no more suffering, no more pain. This is the happy ending we long for. And this is why in every story that we hear, we get kind of the warm fuzzies every time we hear a happy ending. Uh, we see even in the book of Romans where it says that creation itself is longing for reconciliation. It's longing to be made right. And so when we look, think about that and we look at this passage, it kind of makes us wonder, what do we do with a passage like this? It kind of feels like a story ending at the cliffhanger. You know, if you look at James 5, 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. Like, that's not going on a plaque at Hobby Lobby next to Live, Laugh, Love. Like, we, we don't like that kind of stuff. Like, where's the resolution to this? We'll get to that in a couple weeks when the series ends. Um, but what is James trying to say here? We need to remember that James is a book about wisdom. It's a book about wisdom of how you and I apply the truth of God to our lives and that we see God wants us to be wise people. God didn't just leave us hanging in this world. He, he's given us his word to know how to, uh, to live. And so we kind of we see that if there's a wise way to live, a right way to live, that means that there are some ways that are not wise to live. There's some, some kind of the opposite of that would be a lack of wisdom. And there are some things that are really, really unwise. There's some really unwise ways that we can live. And the way that we view money is one of those ways. Money has a way of gripping us and causing us to do some really dumb things. It has a way to, to cause us to make some really terrible decisions. And money can cause us to use people. And if we're not careful, we'll do whatever it takes to get money because of what money secures us. When we look at money, it gives us security, it gives us safety, but the problem with money is that there's never enough. It never truly satisfies, and no matter how much you make, no one ever says, you know, I could take a pay cut. 
We, we all imagine that we need to make more. But to really get what James is get, has for us here this morning, we need to answer and ask two questions. First of all, who exactly is James talking to? We see in verse 1, it says, come now, you rich. So he is talking to people who would be wealthy on earth, monetarily wealthy. And this could be just a general address to anybody who has money, anybody who has a lot of money. Now, last week, we talked about how it's not wrong to, to make plans or to have the ability to do, to do business and make money. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's not wrong to do that. In fact, there's some wisdom in that. But if we leave God out of the decision-making process, if we leave God out of our plans and kind of tag him on at the end, that lacks wisdom. It's actually a lot very prideful. And here he said there's a particular way we do that when it comes to our money, that our money can easily lend us towards greed and towards injustice. And he describes a very particular type of people who would use their, their land, these are landowners in verse 4, um, who uh, would hire people to, to, tend, to tend their land, and that these people were often very poor. And so the, these, the landowners would inherit the land, poor people would work for them, work for wages, and this became a way for the landowners to begin to take advantage of the poor. I recently read an NPR article talking about how LLCs are buying up properties around cities, and they're buying them up in droves, often driving housing prices up. And so you imagine why it's so hard to find a house. This is part of the problem. And people are being driven out because people are realizing that property is something that we can use to gain assets and gain power. It has a type of grip upon our hearts. And so James is saying this is a means for the rich to oppress the poor. But James, truly, who is he talking to? Is he just simply talking to the rich, or is he simply talking to non-Christians who are rich? You, you read a passage like this and think, man, there's no way that people who love God could act in this way. But remember that James is actually writing this letter to a group of Christians who are spread out around the world trying to figure out how to be wise in, the, in their circumstances. And what we see is that you could be a Christian or claim to be a Christian and have massive blind spots when it comes to money. You could be a Christian or claim to be a Christian and even do terrible things because there's a disconnect in your life between the wisdom that God's called you to live and the way that you spend your money. And while this does have implications for anyone, this is particularly, particularly for Christians who are considering how to use our money and how money has a hold on us. So this is particularly for those who are wealthy Christians who have money, and I think in America we would say, in general, most of us fall in this when we compare ourselves to the world. But secondly, why is James writing this to us? And he says here, he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is Old Testament language. We see in verse 4, it tells us to behold, to, to grab our attention. And we see this language of woe and, and wailing and weeping. This is judgment language. What he's saying is he's saying, if money consumes your heart in an unhealthy way where you use it in such a way that hurts other people, judgment is coming for you. This is not an if. This is, this is a when. If, if, if this is what awaits you, if this is the way that your life is consumed, but it's not hopeless. James is saying this is a warning because your life can be different. You can view your money in a different way. You can change and live wisely. And the Bible is warning us about the love of money. And the Bible says that not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil, all sorts of things. And we have to address that. So first, let's look at what a love of money does to your heart. What a love of money does to your heart. So again, money itself is not evil. I mean, like little, a dollar bill is not evil. 
It's, it's benign. There's nothing about it in itself that is evil, but it's what money allows us and is what drives us and draws us towards evil living. If you've ever uh, read The Lord of the Rings or watched The Lord of the Rings, you notice that there's one group of people in the stories who are particularly drawn towards treasure, and that's the dwarves. Now, everybody in the story has issues with greed and lust and all sorts of things, but the dwarves in particular are drawn towards gold. They, they desire it, and the more that they get, the more it begins to poison their hearts. Money has a particular effect on us because of what it promises. It promises us safety. It promises us security. The doors that it opens, the opportunities and the experiences that we can have if we have money. Money opens doors. The status that it brings. We live in a world where one of the first questions we ask somebody is, hey, what do you do for a living? And often that's tied to how much someone makes. And and our view of people is often tied to that. And so when we imagine money and its draw upon our hearts, what does a love for money cause us to do? Verse, uh, verse 2 tells us, it says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. In other words, what happens when our hearts are consumed by a love for money is that we hoard it. We, we sit on it. And this the picture here is a, a picture of the wealthy sitting on a stockpile of their wealth, having more than they needed, just kind of letting it sit and rot. Now, back in, in, when this was written, this is not like today. You know, we, there were no banks. There were no cryptocurrency or NFTs. And I'm not saying that you should bank your future on those, by the way. Um, but there, there was none of that in the world. Your possessions would have been what made you wealthy. Your, your clothing, your rugs, your artwork, the land that you had, there would be some currency, but mostly it was your stuff. And what James is saying is, is when you have more than you need, and you're just sitting on it, it's like those things are rotting underneath you. Because these things are meant to be used. They're not meant to be, to be stockpiled. They're, they're a means to an end. And he's saying if you have so much that you can't use it, it's just rotting and spoiling your rugs and your garments. They're going to be moth-eaten all while people around you are in need. And so he's asking the question, like, why do we need so much stuff? Why do we need so much money? And there's all sorts of questions that come from this, kind of like, where do you draw the line? Like, I don't believe we're called to a poverty gospel. We're called to sell everything. I mean, when we look at that story in, in, the, in the gospels, Jesus was going after the idol of a man's heart. I, I don't think it's the prosperity gospel on the other end where we say that if we give enough money, then God's going to bless us immensely. There, there's, there's a certain line we have to draw and figure out, how do we, how do we live wisely? It can seem kind of arbitrary. It can kind of seem like it's person to person. James, again, is living in a very different world than you and I live in, but there's some principles that we can begin to draw from this. How do you and I hoard the wealth and the resources we have? I don't think anybody here is socking it underneath their mattress. But do you have way more than you need? And this really comes out in your attitude. Are are you generous with what God has given you? Because everything you have is the Lord's and he's allowed you to have it. Or do you tend to be tight or do you tend to be stingy when it comes to your money and your resources and your time? Again, the Bible's not anti-saving. I mean, I think that's wise, but are you a generous person as well? The Bible's not against you saving for your family or for your future or doing something fun or doing something nice. But the question is, is what place does money have in your life? When you think about money or the lack thereof, does it cause tightness in your chest when you think about it? 
When you have a lot of it, does it fill you with pride? When you lose it, do you, does it make you feel fear or shame? Does it give you a feeling of safety or security? And the fact is, is you don't even have to have money to feel that way. You could be broke and money still have a grip on your heart in such a way that you're constantly running and constantly hustling and constantly striving, believing that if you could get to that place that you see other people at, you would finally arrive. But it's not just that. It's the way that money will corrupt and consume your heart. You see this in verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So what does it do next? Once those things begin to rot, once those things begin to corrode, what happens? your, Your very flesh begins to do so. Rot tends to spread. If you've ever seen rot get inside of a house or get inside of wood, you have to go in and pull out every piece of rotted wood because rot will eventually begin to spread to the healthy parts of the the house. It's the same way in your life. When when something in you is rotting, when the uh, the way that we love money, the things we stockpile in our hearts begin to rot, it begins to take over your entire life. And it describes here as this being where your treasure is. It says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. What did Jesus say about our treasure? He says that in Matthew 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If what you're treasuring inside of your heart is something that is meant to rot, something that's meant to corrode, it will begin to do the very same thing to your heart. The stuff that you make a treasure that you hope in, that you bank on, it will begin to spread and corrupt you in such a way that you become so consumed by it that it begins to dominate your life. That when you have money, it corrupts you in such a way that you become selfish or, or greedy or prideful. When the, the thing that you treasure in your heart is threatened, you become defensive or you compromise. When it's taken away, you become bitter or envious. But, but, but what does a heart consumed by a love for money look like? Look at verse 5. It says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. What money will often cause us to do is live a life that is solely about us. It's about what we can get from it. And what's being described here is beyond having nice things. I'm not just here to beat up on people who have stuff. It's beyond spending some money on yourself. This is a type of extravagance. It's luxury. And the word luxury there is, is actually literally the word delicate. It's describing someone who's never known suffering, who is so distanced from other people that they don't understand what suffering looks like. One of my favorite shows is Arrested Development. And one of my favorite shows, characters on that show is Lucille Bluth because she is so disconnected from the world. And she's having a conversation with her son one day. And she's like, look, it's, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? $10? Like she was so disconnected from the real world that she had no clue what money was worth. She had no clue what someone else's experience would be like. And look, you don't have to think that bananas cost $10 a piece to be this way. You can be so consumed with your own needs and your own wants and your own goals that you don't have compassion for other people. You don't see other people's needs. Now, I want you to notice where it says this self-indulgence occurs. It says that it occurs here on earth. Look, if this is all you have, if what you can stockpile in this life is all the treasure you think you have available to you, you'll constantly grab for it and constantly try to get more. You'll constantly hustle and never rest. But if you think about the Bible, where did Jesus say our treasure lied? 
We had a treasure that lied in heaven that moth nor rust could never destroy. That our truest treasure, the true thing that will never fade, that will never go away, is found in him. And what happens when we do this is this frees us. And it actually loosens our grips on the things that we would tend to treasure here. And we start to say, if true treasure is with God, then all the things I have here I can give freely. And this is the picture of sacrificial love that I'm willing to help other people, and I'm willing to deny myself. I'm willing to say, I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to get bigger or better. I'm going to sacrifice what I have in order to alleviate someone else's suffering or to bless another person. And what we find is that that actually leads us to freedom. Uh, another one of my favorite books is, is The Voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis. And there's this horrible, selfish character in that book named Eustace. You can just tell by his name, he's a terrible kid, Eustace. They looked at him and was like, Eustace. And Eustace finds this treasure, and, uh, and he's stuffing his pockets full of treasure. And he's standing on the top of the treasure, he gets exhausted, he falls asleep, and he wakes up and he knows, notices that he's become a dragon. Now, if you've ever read uh, any sort of mythology, a dragon represents greed. And before he had fallen asleep, Eustace had slipped a gold bracelet on his wrist that fit a little boy's wrist, but was now causing immense pain to this giant dragon wrist. And, and he's sitting there, he's howling in pain, and Aslan, the lion, comes along and notices that he can't get it off on his own, and he tells Eustace, he says, the only way that I can get it off is if I undress you. I have to tear the scales off of you, tear the scales of your greed away. And it's hurting horribly, and, and as he begins to scratch at the scales, it really actually hurts. And Eustace says, the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Self-denial hurts. It's denying the things that promise us life that are actually hurting us. But what we begin to find as we deny ourselves is that we experience freedom. We experience joy. We experience the joy of blessing other people. Secondly, let's look at what a love of money causes us to do to others. A love of money doesn't just affect you, it doesn't affect, just affect your heart, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't just corrupt you, but it actually affects the way that you see other people. We tend to think of money as a private thing. We tend to think of, you know, no one's walking around with their pay stub or you shouldn't be waving it at people saying, hey, look what I made this week. We tend to think of it as, as a private thing. We imagine the way that we spend our money only impacts us, but there are a few ways that James shows us in the text how our love and our use of money hurts other people. And the first way we see this is in verse 4, as he talks about holding back wages. It says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. And so we see this picture of landowners who are keeping back money that was owed to the people working for them. He kept, they kept it back by fraud. And sometimes this would be by paying them less than they agreed upon. Sometimes this would be you know, by delaying that paycheck. I worked for a guy in college who never paid on time. I mean, I'd work for him for a day, and he'd be like, oh, I'll get it to you tomorrow. Now, today, if someone doesn't pay you, you have lots of recourse, right? You can go to the Better Business Bureau and make a complaint. You can, if you work at a big enough company, you can file a complaint with HR. If they just continue not to pay you, you could be on LinkedIn or Indeed in like six seconds and have a job next week. That's not the way the world worked back then. In the ancient world, if someone didn't pay you what they owed you for that day, you weren't eating that night. And if that continued to happen, that puts your family at risk. And this is why in verse 6, James says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, but you have not given a person what they're due. 
Now, you might hear that and go, man, like, I, I'm not doing that. I'm not, you know, starving someone to death. And this feels a little distant from us. But what, has the, what is the love of money? It doesn't just corrupt your heart. It doesn't just consume it. It makes your heart callous. It makes your heart callous towards other suffering or even your responsibility for other people. And so the question we have to ask from this is, is there a way that you use or view your money that hurts other people? And there are ways that we do this. Maybe some of you are employers. You employ other people. Do you pay them well? Do you pay them what their job is worth? Do you pay them on time? Or are, are you stingy or are you generous with benefits and pay time off and things of that nature? Do you, do you tend to view people as a commodity or people who glorify God through their work? You can do this as an employee. You, you can actually do your job just to get a paycheck and you're cutting corners and you're like sitting here playing Wordle at the desk and you're like not actually doing your job. You're, you're cheating on your hours, leaving early. Maybe you're just a friend who doesn't pay your part. I had a friend in high school, I won't say his name. He always forgot his wallet. Somehow his wallet never would make it with him to the restaurant. Anybody have a friend like that? Anybody that friend? Okay, we won't answer that question. Uh, you can't get away with that anymore, by the way. There's Venmo. You could send that as well. But maybe you're that person who just, you just don't pay your part. You're using other people and their time and their money. You're expectant with the way you do that. We even see this with some of the systems in the world we live in, like something like the payday loan system, which tends to take advantage of the poor. But it's not just this. James isn't just condemning people in the way that they use money. He's actually giving hope for those who have been oppressed. Not everyone in the congregation he wrote to would have been wealthy. And not everyone here this morning is living in crazy wealth. Some of you, it is a real struggle to live in Boston. And we get that. Some of you may be working multiple jobs. You just can't get ahead on the bills. You, it just doesn't feel like you can catch a break. And what the Bible says is that the Lord hears you when you cry out to him. The Lord hears you. It says that the cries of these workers are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. J.A. Moyder says that his ears are still sensitive to the sufferings of the oppressed. He is listening to your cries. If you've been taken advantage of at work, if you didn't get the pay or the recognition that you deserve, if you got stiffed on a tip, if, if the system is just bent against you, he hears your cries. So how, how do free hearts help us love? Or how, how, how can our hearts be free from a love of money? Last thing we're going to look at today is how City on a Hill, how we as the church can be wise with the money that God's given us. The first way we do this, and really this is the way we approach everything as a church, as Christians, is we apply the gospel. We apply the hope of Jesus directly to our view and our use of money. And so it's been said that the cross is where justice and love meet. That the cross isn't just about the love of God, it's not that he just loved us, but sin actually had to be paid for. And you have to get both sides of this if you really want to be freed from the grip of money on your hearts. Because notice, it doesn't just say in verse 3 that we've been corrupted by money, but it also says that it will be evidence against you that we stand condemned in the way that we use money. You have to believe and see that you are a sinner, but you also have to understand that God is gracious. And so the gospel has, it kind of helps us fight one of two tendencies. One tendency is to give no attention to grace. You're kind of a, you're, you're big on the justice part, big on the holiness part, but you give no attention to grace. 
And so we read a passage like this, if you tend to avoid grace or not give any attention to grace, you read something like this and you just feel bad. You feel, you feel guilty. You feel shame weighing you down. Now, maybe God is wrecking you this morning. Maybe he's wrecking you in the way you think about money, the way that you use it, the way you pursue it. Maybe you're thinking about someone that you've hurt in the way that you've used money. That's not a bad thing. That can actually be good and lead you to healing. However, if it only makes you feel guilty and it doesn't lead you to resting in the grace of God, nothing's going to change. Tim Keller kind of gives us the idea that if I read this and I think, man, I must not be a Christian when I mess up like this, you don't get grace. What you're functionally saying is, is that what got me in good graces with God is, is my goodness. And what keeps me in God's good graces is my goodness. But the Bible says that you've been saved by grace and you've been kept by grace and you'll be brought to the end by grace. You have to run to God's grace. But the other tendency, the other side of the ditch is giving no attention to holiness. Kind of imagining this just as like God giving us a big hug and not dealing with wrongs in the world. Grace isn't a license to do whatever you want to do. Because God is a just God, he's a holy God. And he wants us to be holy like he is holy, meaning we live out the way, the ethic we see here in loving and serving our neighbors. And so when you look at this, when you look at the Bible and it challenges you and convicts you, your, your response shouldn't be, oh, well, you've got to let the full weight of sin sit on you. You have to let the full weight of this hit you because if you don't do that, you're never going to understand how good the grace available to you in Jesus actually is. This, this is going to be my last dislocated shoulder illustration for a while. It just was, it was too good to, to not bring this up. But uh, when, I went, when I dislocated my shoulder last weekend playing softball, most of you heard this story. I'm not going to bore you with the details. I'm sitting in the ER. Jesse Kennedy is there with me, and she's like super encouraging, but she's also like giving me tough love. And she tells me, she says, when they go to put your shoulder back in, when the pain feels the worst is when healing, it was when, when, when it's about to pop back in. Right when it's about to be the worst it could possibly be, it's going to pop back in. And she was right. In the same way, when we experience pain, we experience suffering, we experience the weight of our sin, is the moment we, when we cry out to God. And we see this in Romans. When, when did Paul cry out to God and, and rest in the grace of Jesus? He cried out, wretched man that I am. He saw how deep his sin was, and that caused him to cry out to God for grace. And that's the moment when healing and freedom came. When we see this, when we see the depth of our sin and we look to the cross, we see how much he loves us, that his grace is greater than our sin. So we apply the gospel to it. A second way that we can do this is is living below our means. Now, for some of you, again, this may be really difficult and you may be like really just struggling to be in Boston. But I think in general for us, generous people choose not to live as well as they can. And what happens is as we get a raise, sometimes we start to make a little more money is that our lifestyle and our income, don't, they, they end up increasing at the same pace. What if we were to say, I'm going to slow that down so that I can be generous? What, what if I was willing to live a more modest life in order to be generous? I'm always struck by the story of Rick Warren, who's a pastor in, in Southern California. 
and, uh, and he, he wrote this book called The, the Purpose Driven Life and The Purpose Driven Church and all these things years ago. Uh, but he started out as a, as a normal pastor, and as time went on, he would actually begin to give more and more of his income away and continue to live a very modest lifestyle to the point that he lives on less than 10% of what he brings in. He gives the rest of it away. And what this takes is it, it takes intentionality. It takes looking at your budget or maybe even making a budget and saying, what could I sacrifice? What am I carelessly or thoughtlessly giving my money toward that I could be using to be generous to other people? I would love to challenge you for some of you. Maybe it's a real struggle. Maybe just find $10 in your budget. Just look at your budget. Look at the way that you're spending. Maybe, it's, maybe you're eating out multiple times a week and you say, you know, I'm going to reduce that to one or two. And I'm going to give that $10 to somebody else. I'm going to buy somebody else's lunch. I'm going to be a blessing to somebody else. What are we going to take that and bless others? The third thing we see is that generosity is, is an issue of justice. If unwise living in James is injustice towards the poor, then I believe wise living would be generously living and addressing unjust situations and unjust systems. And we do this a lot as a church. We, we care about education. We, give, we actually give scholarships to kids at English high school because we want to see that scale tip in the other direction. But ultimately, generosity is an issue of worship. At the end of every service, we ask our, regular, our members and regular attenders to give. We don't ask guests to do that. We, it's a responsibility of our members and regular attenders. But have you ever stopped to wonder why we do that? One, it's an act of worship. It's an act of trust. It's a response to the generosity of God towards us in Jesus, the God who provides all things for us that we trust him and we give in a way that he has generously and graciously given towards us. And the reason we do this collectively as the church is this helps us push the mission of God forward in the world. And there's a wisdom in that, that we use that to bless our city and to plant churches and extend the gospel to the far reaches of the world. And where we truly see the generosity of God, and this is why we worship in this way, is we see it in Jesus, that God gave everything for us. That God gave us the most precious thing, his very own son. And we see the greatest picture of, of this in, in, at the end of the chapter where it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. There's no more righteous person than Jesus. There's no more beautiful or worthy person than Jesus. The truly innocent one, the truly righteous one murdered for our sake. And I think what's interesting about that story is that he was betrayed for money. You look at the story of Judas who betrayed Jesus and who was already dipping his hand into the money bag. He was already consumed by greed and sold away his savior for 30 pieces of silver. We see Jesus betrayed, but then we see the other story of Mary Magdalene who comes at Jesus' feet and breaks a very expensive jar of a fragrant oil that would have cost well over a year's salary, and she pours it on Jesus as an act of worship. She gave everything for the one that gave everything for her. And the question for you this morning is, is have you trusted Jesus with everything? Have you trusted Jesus with the things that you tend to treasure in your hearts? Will, will you trust Jesus even with your money, even with your future, even with what you spend your life on? Does he get your whole heart? Let's pray.